When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On Christmas Day, 1594, Queen Elizabeth I of England sat down in the heart of London's legal district to watch a new drama called Gesta Graiorum. During this festive mix of speeches and poetic recitals, a series of fictional royal counselors graced the stage. One, a philosopher, urged the monarchy to build the perfect research facility. It would contain a complete library, museum, workshop, and one more feature, a spacious, wonderful garden, wherein whatsoever plant the sun of diverse climates, out of the earth of diverse molds, either wild or by the culture of man. The philosopher described the garden as a model of universal nature made private, a microcosm of the entire living world. Within it, you could observe nature in its totality without ever stepping outside its walls. The court drama describing this universal garden was the brainchild of an ambitious Renaissance-era polymath named Francis Bacon. Professor Lorraine Daston, historian of early modern science at the Max Planck Institute, describes his background. So Bacon is born in the latter half of the 16th century. He becomes a member of parliament in 1581 at the ripe old age of 20. He is also the architect of an extraordinarily original and ambitious plan to reform all of natural philosophy, that is, all of science. His natural philosophy will discover secrets of nature completely unknown to the ancients. The universal research garden Bacon describes in the play, a fantasy of capturing all of nature within a garden's walls, wasn't a fantasy for him. It was something he wanted Queen Elizabeth to actually build. Bacon believed that this garden could answer a fundamental biological question. Was it possible to classify the overwhelming diversity of plant life into a single rational system? This was a scientific question for Bacon, one whose answer promised exponentially greater insight into the natural world and how it might be harnessed for human use. But for the natural philosophers of Bacon's day, this scientific question was also a theological one. Could humans discern a divine order in nature? Welcome to Illuminations, a limited series from Ministry of Ideas exploring the complex and captivating relationship of religion and science. I'm Zachary Davis. This episode explores the quest for universal knowledge. The project of building a universal garden and the quest for a universal plant taxonomy, both helped kickstart modern empirical science. But these projects had religious motivations behind them as well. A desire to uncover the divine principles inscribed in nature by God and to recover the original botanical Eden. The garden was part of Bacon's lifelong obsession. Francis Bacon wanted to develop a new method for conducting science, based on detailed observations of nature. 
Fortunately for him, the ground was well prepared for Bacon's ideas to take root, thanks to English exploration. In the early 17th century, European powers were sending sailors around the world to discover new trading routes, lands, and peoples. Among the treasures that British ships brought back were exotic plants never before seen in Europe. Here's Rebecca Bushnell, professor at the University of Pennsylvania and author of The Marvels of the World, an anthology of nature writing before 1700. Plants from the New World had made their way into England, but they were making their way in via Spain's you know, colonies in South America, and also, I guess, you know, Central South America and the Caribbean. But also beginning in the 16th century and going probably back earlier, you have the, the plants coming in from the Ottoman Empire. With these travels to new geographical worlds, Europeans were also forced into new intellectual worlds. The conceptual frameworks they'd relied on for centuries were no longer adequate. It's a moment at which Europeans are jolted out of their complacency about their place in the world, both because of voyages to the Far East and to the Far West. They are also jolted out of their palace of knowledge, which has been meticulously built stone by stone in a fusion of Aristotelian natural philosophy and Catholic theology. It, it is a time of radical re-examination of everything people thought they knew. In the centuries leading up to Bacon, many European scholars relied heavily on the ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle, especially the philosophers and theologians of the medieval school known as the Scholastics. Aristotle's works covered everything from physics and biology to ethics and politics, and they remained the dominant texts in universities well into the Renaissance period of the 16th and 17th centuries. But Bacon had a serious problem with what he saw as the Aristotelian method. Bacon wrote that there were two ways of searching into and discovering truth. The first, Bacon said, flies from the senses and particulars to the most general axioms, and from these principles proceeds to judgment. This way of building up knowledge was deductive. When it came to the study of nature, this method started with a few observations, but then made a big jump to quickly extrapolate general principles about the natural world. From those broad general principles, the method would then deduce what must be true about individual organisms in nature. Bacon associated this method with Aristotle and his scholastic followers. And this was the method, he said, that was now in fashion. But the only way to get true deductions about individual organisms would be to start with true general principles. This deductive method only works if one assumes that the parts of nature that we can grasp with limited casual observation fully express nature's essential truths. As scholar Michel Malherbe puts it, quote, Aristotelian logic rests upon a metaphysics which believes that sensible experience gives the human mind the things as they are. In other words, that we can trust our senses to accurately perceive the true and universal nature of the natural world. Bacon didn't think this was true. He thought our senses were too limited to apprehend everything about nature from a few observations. He believed that our tendency to jump from a few observations 
to grand general principles was a fatal flaw in human thinking. And while Aristotle himself had based his scientific works on some empirical observations, many of his followers, Bacon said, did not. Bacon claimed that the scholastics had, quote, their wits shut up in the cells of a few authors, chiefly Aristotle their dictator, knowing little history, either of nature or time. They didn't observe nature, but just made deductions based on principles they read in books. And so their scientific writings, said Bacon, were of no substance or profit. Bacon advocated a different way of arriving at knowledge. His method, in his own words, derives axioms from the senses and particulars, rising by gradual and unbroken ascent, so that it arrives at the most general axioms last of all. This is the true way, but as yet untried. The true way, as Bacon saw it, was inductive. It began with observations taken through the senses. These observations would be more systematic and extensive than in the old method. They would be methodically collected and classified and they would be enhanced by controlled experiments, which would help reveal nature's inner workings more accurately than casual observations of what just happened to be around. From these careful observations, Bacon's method worked its way up slowly, inductively, to progressively more and more general propositions about nature, with each proposition being justified by empirical data. These exploratory missions and the growth of new species entering England meant that European natural philosophers started adopting a more Baconian approach when it came to the novel imported plant species. With no classical authorities to rely on for knowledge of these plants, they had to name and describe nature simply from their own observations. They referred to what they observed about the plant's distinctive smells, tastes, and colors. Horticultural writer John Parkinson listed some recent imports in 1636. A poisonous berry black. A rugged round berry with blackish seeds streaked like a tick. The berry of a plant whose juice is good red ink. One of my very favorite early gardening books is John Parkinson's book called Paradise and Sole from 1629. He differentiates between what he calls English flowers and what he calls outlandish flowers. <laughs> so you realize that's where we get our word outlandish is from something that's foreign. <laughs> Um, and so the outlandish flowers were things like the daffodils, the tulip, the crocus, the crown imperial. In this cacophony of outlandish plants taking root in England, Francis Bacon's ideas found their moment. Only with the kind of intensive observation-based method he advocated could botanists make sense of these new discoveries. Identifying and naming new species was the first task. And this alone was a significant hurdle. Many native plants had no single standardized name, but rather multiple local names. The wild hyacinth was called crotos in southern England and crawtees in the north. The English peasantry called the daffodil loud tibi. On top of this, many British plants had not been properly studied at all. Sometimes what was thought to be one species was actually a confused amalgam of two or more very similar looking ones. The second and even more daunting challenge facing botanists was identifying the relationships among these plants. Early in the 17th century, no one had yet managed to create a clear, rational system for organizing plant species and their relationships. 
Today, we would call this type of system a taxonomy. The botanical world was a bewildering and chaotic array of shapes, smells, sizes, and colors. English gardening and herbal books simply listed plants in alphabetical order without classifying them in any systematic, taxonomical way. The new botanists wanted a new system of classification, one based on fundamental physical differences and similarities between species, and which would highlight their true identifying features. Professor Stefan Muller-Wille, historian of science at the University of Cambridge, explains why these botanists' work in the 17th century was so groundbreaking. So people did, of course, group organisms. They thought of them as falling into discernible groups. And you find reflections on that subject already in Aristotle, very famous. But he was not really interested in, the, in this uh, in its own right. He was interested in particular species. Yeah, so the time before the end of the 17th century is one in which you find all sorts of groupings of organisms, but not this characteristic search for a system or the system that underlies the order of nature. They were sort of the first generation that discovered there might be something to investigate there. That what already is called affinities of organisms is something that, 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 that they fall into groups that should be reflected by human classifications. Um, and they are the first to, to sort of raise that problem. Is there an order of, of nature? And can we reflect this in our man-made divisions of, of nature? This hoped-for scheme was known as the natural classification. Natural classification became the holy grail of 17th century botany. This scheme of classification would communicate exactly what made a plant a member of one particular species, what made hyacinths hyacinths, and primroses primroses. At the same time, it would communicate what similarities held between different species and what groupings species fell into. Ultimately, and this was where the scientific issue merged with the theological one, the scheme would indicate the underlying order in the natural world. Plant classification had profound implications for religion as well as biology. At this time, questions of order in nature were also seen as questions about order and purpose in the universe at large. Early modern natural philosophers took very seriously the concept of natural theology. God's message could be read not only in the Bible, but also in nature, for nature was a product of his handiwork. Or, as the Bible put it in Romans 1.20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. There's a great appeal to natural theology at this particular moment, I would say, but it never dies out. This is Anne Blair, a historian of science at Harvard University. So the 17th century is actually the, the glory years of natural theology. And say, with the discovery of the microscope and the telescope, Everything you find, whether it's so from the very smallest, you know, looking at the eye of the fly, like Robert Hooke does in his micrographia, or whether it's looking at the, you know, heavenly bodies and their motions as Isaac Newton studies, and also the way his book, The Principia, started with praise of his discoveries uh, along these lines. From the very smallest to the very largest, it is all 
God's creation, God's wonderfully, uh, carefully arranged mechanisms, which we can admire. The tradition of natural theology, which was basically a justification for the study of nature based on a better understanding of divine creation and divine providence, divine wisdom, that the study of nature is almost a form of worship. One of the most important figures to apply natural theology to the botanical world was John Ray. Born in England in 1627, John Ray began studies at Cambridge at age 17. Like Bacon, Ray believed in examining living plants directly. No plant was too lowly or mundane to be scientifically interesting, and each held clues to the ultimate order of creation. To discover the divine truths of the natural world, Ray took it on himself to observe and catalog all the plants around Cambridge, and eventually throughout all England. Based on what he had learned, Ray published his first attempt at a classification system in 1682. He called his system the New Method of Plants. The book offered up a grand system that proposed sorting plants on the basis of the number of seeds in their fruits. Two other major botanists in Paris and Germany critiqued Ray's system and offered their own alternatives. Ray attended to their ideas, and in 1686, he came out with The History of Plants. This three-volume work incorporated all these botanists competing ideas into one revised classification system that sorted plants based on seeds, leaves, and flowers. Ray was an empiricist, but not an atheist. He believed that he could only classify nature in this systematic way because there was a systematic order to the world. That order had been created by a higher power. In 1691, Ray published The Wisdom of God Manifested in the Works of Creation. In this book, he argued that everything observable in the physical universe is evidence of the work of an intelligent creator. And one feature of the world that particularly revealed God's greatness as an intelligent creator was the number and diversity of plant species. If the number of creatures be so exceeding great, how great, nay, immense, must needs be the power and wisdom of him who formed them all. The Almighty reveals more of his wisdom in forming such a vast multitude of different sorts of creatures. For this declares the greatness and unbounded capacity of his understanding. Natural theology proposed a divinely given order lying beneath the chaotic diversity of that vast multitude of creatures. Belief in this hidden order fueled the search for a rigorous plant classification system because just as theologians poured over the Bible, the book of scripture, for clues to the mind and will of God, natural theologians believed they could come to know God by better understanding the second book of Revelation, the book of nature. And this spiritual quest to better understand nature motivated the construction of new kinds of gardens. Francis Bacon never was able to convince Queen Elizabeth or her successor, King James I, to build the universal garden he depicted in his 1594 play. But in the late 1500s, some botanists did start to cultivate the sorts of research gardens that Bacon wanted, although on a smaller scale. In past eras, English gardens were either kitchen or herbal gardens, cultivated for practical purposes, or pleasure gardens attached to elite estates. In Bacon's day, 
Botanists began creating gardens dedicated specifically to studying those new, never-before-seen species imported from foreign continents. But these weren't just botanical research gardens. They were also attempts to recreate the original garden. Professor Amy L. Tigner of the University of Texas at Arlington explains. The whole idea was that they, they were collecting the seeds of paradise. So that the notion was that paradise, when it was dissolved, that all the seeds sort of exploded into the world and were dispersed. So one of the ideas is that they're basically sort of in their gardens recollecting paradise. The book of Genesis says that the first humans, Adam and Eve, lived in the paradisiacal Garden of Eden amongst the wealth of God's plant and animal creations. While in paradise, Adam lived in harmony with all creatures, and he knew and named them. When Adam and Eve ate from the forbidden tree of knowledge, they had a fall from grace and were expelled from Eden, and lost their supposedly perfect scientific knowledge. If botanists could bring together all the plants of the world and name them, they could, in a way, recover the Garden of Eden and some of Adam's original perfect knowledge. According to Francis Bacon, this was knowledge God wanted us to have. Bacon has a very interesting retelling of the story of the fall, of the expulsion of Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. He says that they sinned not by seeking innocent natural knowledge, but by seeking moral knowledge, the knowledge of good and evil, and that God does not frown upon human beings seeking natural knowledge, which he likens to a kind of game, children's game of hide-and-seek, in which um, it is God's pleasure to strew secrets through nature so that we might find them out. By the end of the 18th century, Bacon's vision was becoming a reality. Europe had more than a thousand botanical gardens housing plants from around the world. And there was an emerging consensus for naming and classifying plants based on a new taxonomy system proposed by the Swedish botanist Carl Linnaeus. Linnaeus's system introduced the hierarchies of kingdom, class, order, genus, and species, which classified all living organisms in smaller and smaller sets according to more and more precise similarities. He also came up with the idea of binomial nomenclature, the system of naming organisms with a two-part name. The first part indicates which genus they belong to, and the second indicates their species within this genus, so that the name alone gives some sense of the relationship between different organisms. The scientific name for the white oak, for instance, is Quercus alba. Quercus for the larger oak genus, and alba meaning white, referring to this species' light gray bark. We still use Linnaeus's two-name system today. Even Bacon's most ambitious dream of a complete research garden encompassing all forms of life has, in a way, been fulfilled. Today, a digitized garden concisely captures Earth's manifold life forms as we discover them. OneZoom is a website that visualizes all life on Earth as an interactive public map. Like the ideal universal garden, 
the computer can compress an almost infinite variety of living things into a single ordered space. Zoomed out, the map is a mesmerizing tangle of tendrils that radiate outwards. Click on any point and you are drawn deeper into the dense branches on the tree of life. Classes, then orders, then families, genera, and finally, at the tips of the branches, species and varieties within species. One zoom was developed by Dr. James Rosendell at Imperial College London, in collaboration with Dr. Yan Wong and also with the Linnaean Society of London. Here's Dr. Rosendell. I wanted it to be a visualization of all known life. The only way to achieve that is to find a way to squeeze two million species and all their connections onto a single page. And the idea of how to do that was using a branch of maths called fractal geometry. It creates these beautiful objects that look very similar as you zoom into them, but they have huge amounts of detail in as well as being quite beautiful. So the idea was to create something that was beautiful and detailed and had those properties, but where the details were actually information itself. And the tree of life is this object that describes all life on earth, how it evolved from a single common ancestor. And we want to make that really clear and accessible to everybody in all of its glory. OneZoom was designed to bring the whole store of biological knowledge to a general audience. Dr. Wong notes that it's of particular interest to people who are concerned with the conservation of biological life. I think you can't help uh, but be concerned, if you like, and, and driven by uh, conservation problems. When you look at the tree of life and you see, using one zoom, um, the number of species, leaves on our tree, essentially, that are under quite serious threat of extinction. If you're any biologist that is stimulated by the diversity of life, then you would want to preserve that diversity of life. Um, and it's quite clear that there are substantial problems caused mostly by humans that are causing major problems to vast areas of the trees of life. And so, so I think any biologist who, who sees that context would be uh, driven by conservation aims as well. Wong and Rosendell aren't religious believers. But Wong's remarks indicate that modern taxonomy isn't completely divorced from spiritual concerns. As we experience species loss on an apocalyptic scale, the science of taxonomy is taking on a new sense of ethical and spiritual purpose because of its connection, as Wong notes, to conservation. Cataloging life forms in the Anthropocene has strong parallels to the story of Adam's work in Eden. In the Genesis story, God charges Adam to care for the garden, and one of his tasks is to name all living creatures. Today, naming and identifying all living species is a crucial step towards preserving them. In 2019, theology professor David Cloutier wrote an article for the Catholic magazine Commonweal, noting that it isn't always easy to care about species extinction, especially if the species under threat isn't something large and kind of cute like a polar bear or gorilla. The impact of species extinction on human beings simply isn't as clear as the impact of climate change. Most talk of endangered species or extinction, except our own, can seem either sentimental or abstract. 
Projects like OneZoom can make extinction less abstract, however, by allowing people to see what biodiversity looks like and where it's currently threatened. Not only does OneZoom place millions of species before your eyes on its tree of life, it color codes the tree to show which species are in danger. Extinction is a major scientific environmental concern. Cloutier explains why it is also a religious concern. A commitment to maintaining biodiversity rests on a bedrock conviction of the integrity of the whole of creation, created by and destined for God. The disregard of biodiversity is a crucial mark of our environmental sins. In 2015, Pope Francis wrote Laudato Si on care for our common home. He referred to this text in a 2020 TED Talk on climate change, dubbed here into English. Five years ago, I wrote the encyclical letter Laudato Si, dedicated to the care of our common home. He proposes the concept of integral ecology to respond together to the cry of the earth as well as to the cry of the poor. In Laudato Si, Francis emphasized the spiritual worth of all creation. Each creature, he writes, possesses its own particular goodness and reflects a ray of God's infinite wisdom and goodness. He also spoke directly to the kind of taxonomizing work that OneZoom undertakes in naming and cataloging creatures and the underlying spiritual meaning of this work. Because all creatures are connected, each must be cherished with love and respect. This will require undertaking a careful inventory of the species with a view to developing strategies of protection for safeguarding species heading towards extinction. Pope Francis summed up his message by stating that the ecological crisis is also a summons to profound interior conversion. This spiritual conversion means recognizing the divine order in the world that 17th century botanists were striving to uncover and the spiritual responsibilities this order entails. True faith, said Francis, includes the recognition that God created the world, writing into it an order and a dynamism that human beings have no right to ignore. Jesus says of the birds of the air that not one of them is forgotten before God. How then can we possibly mistreat them or cause them harm? In past centuries, quite possibly for Bacon himself, naming has also been an act of mastering. Taxonomy implied dominion, a knowledge of the natural world that laid a path toward possessing it and harnessing it for use. But in Wong, Rosendale, and Francis's framing, taxonomy becomes something else, an act of respect and remembering. Francis's encyclical concludes with a prayer. God of love, show us our place as channels of your love for all the creatures of this earth for not one of them is forgotten in your sight. This episode was produced by Rosalind Ray. Illuminations is a limited series from Ministry of Ideas. Illuminations is produced by me, Zachary Davis, Leah Rechtman, Maria Devlin-McNair, and Nick Anderson. Script editing is by Galen Beebe. Sound design and music is by Steve LaRosa, and artwork is by Dan Pecci. Our production assistant is Jay Doherty. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support us by sharing the show with your friends, subscribing, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. 
For more information or to get in touch, visit our website at ministryofideas.org. Ministry of Ideas is a proud member of Hub and Spoke, a collective of carefully crafted, idea-driven podcasts. You can check out all of our shows at hubspokeaudio.org. Do you ever feel like you are going through the motions and that your major life choices are simply subscribing to the status quo? And do you ever wonder if your general opinions and viewpoints of the world are overly influenced by society at large? I want to tell you about a podcast called Preconceived that helps you navigate such questions. Each episode challenges a different preconception, featuring experts and luminaries in their respective fields. I think you'll especially enjoy recent episodes on regretting parenthood, the sex club, and drunk, an argument for intoxication. Find Preconceived wherever you get your podcasts. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.